AFS Viewfinders podcast is designed to deepen and broaden appreciation of film. Brought to you by the Austin Film Society and hosted by our programmers and friends. Welcome. And uh, so the movie that we're talking about now is one that I was shocked to hear that you have never taught in one of your classes, Three on a Match, a movie that I hope everyone who's here has watched. Um, so so you've, never, you've never taught this movie, why not? It's a great question, but first I wanna show my props. Oh wait, yeah. Because you know what? If we can't be at AFS, I brought a little AFS to here with along with my fake cigarette because people don't smoke, okay? It's not healthy. But can we talk about the fact that all they do in this movie is drink during prohibition, mind you, and smoke three on a mash. So I'm enjoying myself. I hope that everybody else is. Again, don't smoke. I don't know why I have not taught this movie. The only thing I can tell you is that when we look at pre-code, and I haven't had the chance to teach like just a like just a code class or something, I haven't had a chance to teach a, a class that just looks at this period in a really long time. That when I when I look at the pre-code period, I always get sucked into Babyface, which you and I have, of course, talked about in the past. And the reason that I love Babyface is one, it's also as insane as Three on a Match, but it also has this weird, they actually at the Library of Congress found a pre-code kind of code version. So you can kind of play with the different versions. Three on a match didn't go through that same kind of process. It was a, you know, it was like a cohesive film. In some ways though, re-watching it for this made it all the more interesting because in some ways it's actually far more odd than Babyface, which is pretty darn odd. So that would be my, my quick answer. And I would quickly, before we kind of backtrack and talk a little bit about more about what pre-code means, I do want to uh, encourage everyone to watch Babyface, um, which is not part of the Joan Blondell retrospective because she's not in it, although she's a night nurse, which you should watch as well. Uh, but Babyface is, uh, is one of the most unusual. Um, I've often called Babyface the most pre-code of all pre-code films, but I think Three on a Match could be the right next to it in that neighborhood, that very good pretty, neighborhood. Pretty close, pretty close. You kind of have to pick... In some ways, you kind of have to pick your horse. And yeah, I said it directly because we're 1930s style here. You got you to gotta pick your lady. I am partial to Joan Blondell. I'm not going to lie. Um, Lars is partial to Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, I think, you know, at some point when we're all together, we probably will argue about it in a more vociferous way. But Joan Blondell, the series that they have on Criterion right now, is so awesome. If you get a chance to watch all the Joan Blondell titles, it's pretty unique. Those titles had not been released, uh, not all of them anyway, had been released uh, really in a while. So yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, it's really special stuff. So uh, I wanna kind of walk a tightrope because I don't wanna bore the people who are very familiar with pre-code, but I imagine there are people, some people on the call who may not be familiar with what we mean when we say pre-code. So um, uh, storms were gathering uh, in the early sort of talky days uh, with the studios. Uh, whereby they, uh, I'll try to keep it real quick, whereby they felt they needed to uh, to sort of stave off censorship coming from many of the Catholic censorship boards and other sort of boards around the country that they should impose their own sort of self-censorship. But the guy they appointed named Hayes, Will Hayes for the Hayes Code, was in fact pretty much an insider, a swamp creature, if you will, a lobbyist and all of this, and was not um, really interested or capable of shutting down 
you, you know, anything that Hollywood was doing that was making money. Um, eventually, he appointed a guy named Joe Breen in 1934, who was good at it, who took his job seriously, uh, and were all the poorer for it because he actually uh, did censor a lot of movies. So that period between 30 and 34, we often refer to as the pre-code period. Did I get that about right, Caroline? It's about right. And what's kind of fun, I mean, fun, air quotes on that one. I've been thinking a lot over the last couple of months, how interesting it is that, that in some ways it's all cyclical, right? When we think about the roaring twenties, when we think about like all of a sudden we're reliving this thing, even with arguments over the postmaster general, because that is what um, Will Hayes was. So here's this guy who was postmaster general of all things, who gets put in charge of the, the nascent and Motion Pictures Association, right? The other thing about what's really interesting about Lars, you're saying that you've got Will Hayes coming in and he appoints somebody, Joe Breen. The reason they brought in Joe Breen is because Will Hayes was a good Protestant. Joe Breen was a Catholic and he was not messing around because one of the biggest um, kind of activist groups were Catholic mothers, right? So in some interesting sort of way, what we're seeing just in the last couple of weeks, arguments over the postmaster general, arguments over is the role of Catholicism in, public, in the public sphere controversial. It's right there. So, so yeah, I think that the pre-code is a weird term because it's actually during the code, but it was a period in which the code wasn't enforced. Meaning you had the, you had the kind of studio bosses going, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. Wink, wink. Sure. Joan Blondell, take your, take your top off. It's fine. When, when the code becomes enforced, that's when things kind of get a little bit more stayed, right? Um, so, so you're looking at this interesting period in which the code is there, but it's not really being enforced. Yeah. And so it's shocking to a lot of people who equate old movies with you know, a lack of uh, people behaving as they would behave in real life um, to see this movies from many of the movies from 30 to 34, because um, and some people think he, they couldn't possibly have meant that, but they probably meant that the thing that they say that you're like, they couldn't have meant that. Yeah, they probably did, actually. Uh, and you see that a lot. And I think you see that uh, we'll, we'll talk about some specific examples as we get into our discussion with this movie where they that is actually what they meant. Um, and it's surprising for a lot of people. Um, uh, one thing that I think that um, I've always thought it was an interesting distinction to make between uh, the city and the country, you know, the, the sort of the, these movies, um, it's shocking. Um, it wouldn't have been as shocking at the time for a New Yorker as it would have been for a resident of Tulsa, you know, let's say. So th these were really sort of urban movies that were geared at an urban audience. And that was sort of um, what Warner Brothers did. Um, uh, with, with their social realism pictures, with their gangster pictures, their crime pictures, their depression and uh, prohibition pictures. Um, they were, they had really sort of carved out that sort of Lower East Side um, uh, kind of uh, city grouping, whereas many of the other studios were aiming just as hard at Tulsa. Not to, I, I always use Tulsa as a whipping boy. We'll use Tulsa as a whipping boy, that's fine. And as a native Kansan, Mm -hmm. I'm going to say yes and no, because to a certain degree, I would totally agree with that characterization. The other aspect we have to remember is that when we think about exhibition, right, when we think about movie theaters, 
it's not just the representation of cities that you see or the content, it's also about exhibition. And the vast majority of the money that was made for Hollywood studios was unsurprisingly in the big cities, right? Tulsa actually would have made more money than let's say Norman or whatever that is, right? In the case of Kansas, Kansas City or Wichita would have made a lot more than Fort Scott. So where they found, where you find it in particularly in the 1930s is that Fox is kind of the only studio that, that makes a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more innocuous movies at this time. Why? Because they owned more theaters in rural areas. Mm -hmm. Whereas to a certain degree, when you look at MGM and when you look at the other kind of big studios, Paramount for sure, they owned, they owned Austin. They didn't, they didn't necessarily own, um, you know, Ardmore, Oklahoma. So I think, I think it's an interesting issue because to a certain degree, are we as a 21st century audience, um, putting our interpretation of the content or is it a blend of content and also the mechanics of what's going on in 1932 because the depression's in mm -hmm. and they've got to worry about that. Yeah. And the depression's shadow hangs over this film all the way and the films of this sort. Um, so to get specifically to the film three on a match. So this is, um, as we said, it's a Warner Brothers movie. I think probably some people are sort of shocked to see Humphrey Bogart turning up. Maybe they're surprised to see uh, Edward Arnold turning up. Uh, people who, who would have been bigger names later. Who, uh, but these were these were people that were kind of riding in the uh, that were sort of hanging out in the Warner stable for for a while um, before sort of public taste kind of caught up with them. Um, can we agree? I feel like we all, now that we've seen this, can we all agree? And this is going to sound controversial. I don't mean to be this way. And when we open up to discussion, bring what you got. I feel like this is one of the few times you're like, Betty Davis was kind of a fox. Like, oh yeah, like later in her career, you're like, what's going on there? Betty Davis, cute as a button. She has approximately five lines. Same with Humphrey Bogart. So handsome. So well, handsome. So underutilized. Lyle Talbot. What happened to that guy? Well, he ended up in Ed Wood movies, but with, <laughs> Betty with Betty Davis, she was brought out from New York and they didn't they didn't know what the hell to do with her in Hollywood. So they get, made her a peroxide blonde. They tried out a lot of different things. She's in a, a pre-code movie called X Lady that we showed that's pretty terrific. But she hated this whole period. She wrote about it and she talked about it at length about how she much she hated it. But she would just be assigned these films that she didn't want to do. And for us looking at three on a match, it looks pretty damn good. Uh, but to her, she always sort of hated it. And that happened with Anne Dvorak, Dvorak, Dvorak uh, as well, who plays the, really plays the lead in this film, is that she went on suspension, kind of cost her career really, uh, which is what a lot of these actors would do. They would just go on suspension. They would refuse to work and they would end up on suspension, which meant that their contracts kept getting put on hiatus and kept getting longer and longer. Uh, but she went on suspension and found out that the, uh, the little boy who plays her son in this film made exactly the same amount of money that she made, kind of carrying the dramatic load of this film. So uh, she was pretty pissed about that. And Betty Davis had a lot of the same thing. And Betty Davis actually went to Europe. And uh, it, it was a whole interesting thing where uh, Betty Davis, in some ways, uh, really affected a change in the way that studio contracts happened. But she hated these kinds of movies that she kept getting thrown into. Um, and they didn't understand Betty Davis. They didn't understand what she was, obviously, or she would have probably kind of taken the lead 
role in this film if they had known how good she was. I'm not complaining. I think Anne Dvorak's good. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, it's interesting. And, and probably this is where I have a too unhealthy an obsession with this time period. I, I think it's complicated. I think what, what's interesting about, about this and particularly you're bringing out this, this kind of litigious nature of what was going on after Anne Zvorak, I had to look it up three times how she pronounced it, which is not her given name, by the way. She adopted it, right? Um, which she cursed later, but nonetheless. When we look at this period, Betty Davis is known as this, this kind of brassy woman that took on Warner Brothers. Not often do you hear about the earlier case, which is actually stemming from this movie and actually was a larger star at the time, which is Andrew Warak, right? Um, and I think that this is really an important aspect to thinking about this movie, which is it's not just what we're seeing on the screen, but actually also that studio system. Because by the time 1932 rolls around, you've gone from this kind of startup, kind of fun family and business kind of environment to more and more of a corporate structure that we see today. Warner Brothers is unique because it was still largely family owned. It was still uh, you know, kind of run by Jack Warner, his brothers. The other studios by now had pretty much been sold off and were being run by a more corporate entity. So the fact that they take on Jack Warner, the fact that they take on these guys is really interesting, but somehow Anne's story gets lost. Um, and the intersection too of the UK, that's, that's the place where the Hollywood stars go to flee. That's where they go is that they can speak English. They're big stars in the UK. The first time I ever really learned about Anne Schwerk was when I was living in the UK because she became a larger star there. She became a participant in the World War II. Um, I think she was an ambulance driver or something really random. Um, so there's this, also this kind of transatlantic relationship that's, that's developed in terms of stardom that's, that's kind of crazy too. And that's, that's exactly where Betty Davis went as well to, to make her film. Um, so I think we should, uh, um, unless you have anything else you'd like to say before we open it up, I think we should open it up to people and let's talk to the folks. I can't see, normally I can see everybody sitting out there yawning and shifting in their seats, but uh, I can't right now. So let's, um, Sarah, if we have the technology, let's open it up and, and take some questions. Yeah, if anybody has a question, uh, if you'd like to raise your hand or uh, unmute yourself. Uh, there's not a lot of, I, yeah, that I don't see anybody with their hands raised. So if they have any questions or comments. <laughs> I, I have a question, honestly, which is I found the performance of that small child irritating beyond belief. And having read that uh, comment that Largie brought up, which is that Angevark looks and sees that he's making is she's making the same amount as this guy. So I started looking up this morning, different reviews of the film at the time. All they did was praise that Bobby, whatever his name was, I wrote it down somewhere. Um, all they did was praise his, his performance. And I just was curious if everybody else thought he seemed absolutely insufferable. I, no? certainly did. I certainly did, but you know who's you know what kid performance is great in this because you see you see all the, all those great kids at the beginning, you've got that one terrible kid performance in this, but at the beginning the kids are incredible, and there's like Frankie Darrow's in it, and you see him, and you see like all these other kids. The kid who plays the sort of stereotype Jewish kid, I got two pairs of pants. That kid, 
uh, later went on to ha have a long career acting and directing and stuff. I Sid somebody, I can't remember his last name, but like there's so many great kid performances at the beginning of this film. And then boom, we're gonna have like the spotlight kid and he's terrible. He's terrible. And it's so true. Here's a really good trivia um, piece. If we have any Disney fans in, in our group, I would say audience, but this is too weird. So the young woman that plays Joan Blondell's child, child version, right, was actually from Kansas City and had been brought out as a child by Walt Disney in his first foray to Hollywood that he had a he had a series of comedies called the Alice comedies and it was oh, his yeah. first attempt to to create basically live features animation bring this all together and that is actually her so just as a really fun piece of trivia she's actually really talented she doesn't really do very much not a whole lot afterwards but you're right I haven't thought about that Lars you actually have these great child performances and then all of a sudden it's this like weird saccharine Shirley like boy Shirley temple but without the talent I, that's too hard <laughs> i i did look him up and i realized he he died kind of a, a young at a young age so i feel bad saying that um hi robert i saw robert there for a moment yeah that was um i saw elizabeth uh you have your hand raised so if you'd like to unmute yourself and ask your question or your comment <laughs> Uh, my comment was just that uh, I and uh, Dvorak was a revelation to me in this role. I just had never even heard of her. And she was so good. And then another thing is that I really expected the movie to go in one direction and it, it went in another direction. I mean, it was just was really surprising. Uh, I just thought it would be more stereotypical. It was it really su pleasantly surprised me in the direction that it went in. In, in what way? What would you have thought that where where were you seeing it go? I thought we were going to concentrate on the upper class. Well, that we're going to concentrate on Joan Blondell's struggles. And then she was going to meet the upper class woman and try to take over her life or something like that. Or that we were going to get to see the kids again, like that we would get to see the grown up version of all the kids in the classroom, that they would come back in the story somehow. And, and they didn't. I was surprised by that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, I wanted to see the Jewish kid. I wanted to see the, the sort of over the top stereotype Jewish kid because he was great. Oh yeah, he was great. <laughs> I was wondering how old that kid was, the, the principal, because he looked like a toddler. So I don't know if it's fair to compare him to the, the older children in the uh, reform school and elsewhere. It's true. All those kids were being really unfair because all those kids in reform school were like 13 or 14 years old, probably. Yeah. The kid was like six or four or five. So, yeah. Oh, no, he was much younger than that. He was definitely a toddler. And it is it is amazing, really, that he was able to um, to retain those lines and, and, and perform. So you're absolutely right. I it's funny. I became quite obsessed with um, as Lars, unfortunately, knows with a short films from the 1930s that feature children. And it, it had to do with my job at Warner Brothers because when I worked at Warner Brothers in film preservation, my boss was like, I wanna take all of the A pictures. So I'm gonna take Singing in the Rain and I'm gonna take Bullet and you're gonna take all the Vitaphone short subjects that 
we have. And I was like, okay. So I watched a lot of short subjects with children. And what you find is that every studio wanted to find another Shirley Temple. And so you have all of these short subjects with really tiny children, really tiny children. And it's really, it's really remarkable that you see children at that age being able to perform um, in this way. So, so that's a fair, that's a fair defense of um, Bobby. I think his, his name was. Yeah, uh, I'd go a little easy on him. <laughs> I think you're right. I think that's a, that's a fair critique. That's a fair critique. Um, but I kept wondering as I was rewatching it, I was like, can you imagine how cross Betty Davis would have been that she's stuck with the kid. She's like, let's go into the beach. You know, meanwhile, Joan Blondell's like, Hey, handsome man in a three-piece suit on a beach. Let's chat, right? And Betty Davis like, what am I doing with this kid? Why am I here? <laughs> Why did I show up for this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think she writes about that, right? In her book, she's like, I don't know why I showed up for this movie. Yeah, right, right. I wonder if we have any more contributions from our audience. It's, it's by the way, it's great seeing you guys. I had no idea it was going to be so cool seeing people that I'm used to seeing at the theater, but it really is. It's so nice to see you guys. Uh, Brendan has a comment or question, if you'd like to unmute yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, this is my first time seeing this film. Um, and so my background, I'm a senior film student at UT and I'm watching a bunch of like noir stuff, bunch of, bunch of code noir stuff. I mean, I guess noir really wasn't invented until, I mean, you know, modern, you know, at that point, noir was like mid forties when people started realizing what noir was. So I didn't, have not watched a lot of pre-code stuff. And so I was just, I was just like watching some of the subject matter. The, well, it was the subject matter and also the camera work. I, I thought like at the very end, I mean, when she jumps out the window and the messages on her back, I really had, did not expect that at all from a film from like 1932. Um, I like. I thought I was like, man. Like, I feel like Christopher Nolan has stolen this for like a for like the Joker or something. Um, that and then also like this is 1932. I think it's like three years after sound really becomes a thing in films. And I thought that the camera was really unchanged. And I thought that like, and I, I was I, my question, I guess, for y'all as film historians is in terms of like the you know increased. Um, I, I guess technology using sound. I, I thought there were some really beautiful shots, like a lot of like tracking or like dolly shots, almost like like, like kind of like Max Ophel's, like like some interesting stuff going on. Um, it wasn't it wasn't very vaudeville like theatrical where you have one shot the entire time. Like um, I guess I was my question is 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 how did you, have you how do you all see that technology really advancing so fast in you know three four years. Caroline, well, it's interesting. I, I think that's an interesting interpretation. I would still argue that it is still slightly contained. Um, but you're, you have a good point. It's a little bit more expanded from, let's say, those really early uh, talkies, right? Now, remember that even though kind of these traditional film histories will, will point to 1929, 1927, kind of around that period, Sound had actually been experimented with for a decade prior. So, so by the time you get to something like The Jazz Seeker, which is a Warner Brothers film, right? 
sound had actually been a part of newsreels. It had been a part of a lot of other kind of films. So it, this kind of apocryphal singing in the rain kind of experience that they talk about, I don't really believe was really that much. I think it's more like probably what we experienced with film to digital, where you're kind of like, yeah, I've seen a digital film. Yeah, I've seen this. And then it kind of becomes the norm. So I think it is, you're right, particularly with that scene that really is unexpected where she kind of bolts for the window, right? Um, I, I think it wouldn't have been wholly un, unusual to see these kinds of things. It probably feels more pronounced when it's, when it's kind of out of context and it feels so foreign. That being said, there's still some moments, I think, where you can tell that you've got the Warner Brothers Vitaphone, because it's very much Vitaphone, where you're leaning into the microphone to a central space, or they're still having to keep them somewhat contained. They're certainly not having, you know, running down the street um, following someone. The, but the other interesting thing is watching this on Criterion Channel, watching this having been completely, completely restored also, I think, changes slightly the interpretation because they have been able to manipulate and restore that, restore that sound to a quality that it would not have been originally. They really, really cleaned up the pops and all that, in some ways, almost more the, even than the image. So... So I would argue, I would argue yes and no. Um, I think in terms of the darkness, in terms of the content, welcome, welcome to the pre-code club because it gets real weird, real weird. This is a very, even though it didn't feel like vaudeville to you, nearly everybody in this film, except oddly for like Bogart and, and uh, Betty Davis are coming straight out of vaudeville. Joan Blundell, born and raised in vaudeville. Um, so you're actually, seeing, I think seeing some interesting time travel. I think in 1932, also, you've, you've had a few years, Warner had more time than anybody else to kind of overcome the hurdle. Because when you look at the late silence, or like you look at sunrise or something, the camera's all over the place. It's, it's a beautiful art form that it developed. And then the microphone comes in and everybody has to stand around the flower pot. But I, but I do think that by this time, Warner Brothers and other studios had had a, a couple of years. Because if you look at movies from 1930, it really is Rod LaRock standing around a flower pot talking into it. I know what a big Rod LaRock fan you are. Huge fan. Uh, I would say though, not a lot of exterior shots still, right? Mm -hmm. You're not really gonna be outside that much. That's why I think that beach scene is hilarious because it's they're attempting to get outside but for the most part you're you still have a lot of interiors partly because the equipment was so big and bulky that it was just impossible to get outside of that space um but i guarantee you that that uh Director Leroy would have been thrilled with your assessment of this because I think it was a real constriction upon how a lot of directors and producers wanted to film at the time. So great, great question and great comment. Yeah. And there's a bit of meta text there too, if I may use a pretentious word, please. I don't do it very often. There's a bit of meta text going on there too, where she flies out the window and in a way she's sort of breaking the sort of stage bounds, uh, the set bound sort of quality of it. And that's the break where she does go into the outside is when she goes out the window. So it's traumatic, it's the end of the film. It's the, it's the occurrence of the message, uh, but that is the message is there possibly. Sorry, I will not use the word meta text again. You got it, you deserve it. You deserve it. This is the time to bring in comments like meta. 2020, we're doing Yeah. Ooh, I wonder if we have anyone else that has any uh, uh, questions or contributions or observations. Sure. Yeah, uh, Elliot does, it looks like. He has his hand raised. Yeah, I, I do have some comments. One, it was really interesting to me how the film set the stage with a little uh, 
newspaper articles. Um, and it was just fascinating. You know, hear all these articles. I mean, it was just like today. Hear all these articles saying, oh, things are getting better. I mean, this was the middle of the depression. And, and, so, and so everyone knew that, you know, they were looking at these going, what are they talking about? And one of the reasons that the kid was kidnapped was because that was the thing to do then. I mean, in, in life, because people who had money had kids, you kidnap their kid and you'd make some money. And so, I mean, th this film meant a lot to people who, who you know, were, were there living then. Uh, they obviously didn't have a lot of money like the lawyer did, but they understood, you know, his side of it and probably the gangster side of it. I, I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah, it's super interesting. I was, I was actually curious. I thought it was really interesting. I started messing around looking at like 19, I was like 1932, 1932. And this was the exact time, right, of the Lindbergh. Lindbergh, what, you're right. Right, which, exactly. Which is so interesting that you that you bring that up because they did, as I understand it, and Lars, you might you might know more, got a little bit of trouble initially with the release of the film because people were like, "Ooh, this is this is really a little a little too close," and might be too upsetting for people um, because that was such a huge news story. Oddly enough, I just happened to see a headline that Joe Montana's grandson or grandchild was, they uh, they stopped somebody kidnapping Joe Montana's grandson. I was like, what is this 1932? Like what is happening? Who is breaking into Malibu homes to kidnap famous children? But maybe everything has come around again. But no, I, I think your point about how they use those headlines is really interesting because I hope everybody noticed that this was the shortest film known to man. This, this was like 65 minutes or something. I mean, they are going through. And one of the effective ways of, of passage of time was they kept putting up these headlines. Yeah, I think it was really well done. I mean, Super well done. you know, it's just long Thank enough you. to read it and think about it a little bit. And people who, you know, were living in 1932 understood that, um, you know, they could just see the headline and not even read the rest of it because they knew what was going on. But it's still, I think it's still kind of an interesting concept. I mean, uh, you know, people aren't kidnapping people so much right now, but, uh, you know, in Latin America, I lived in Colombia for a while. Kidnapping was like big business. Yeah, oh, but yeah. the election's just around the corner and you never know. I mean, and, and, depending I, on right. how it goes, you might have a rash of kidnappings. <laughs> but it's true. That's a really good point about Latin America, because that is very much, I mean, and there have been lots of Hollywood films about that too. Um, but you're absolutely right. That kind of currency, this this currency of desperation, that that this is what you're going to resort to in order to do this is it is a really interesting and an incredibly evocative, powerful narrative device. Um, but is is legitimately a, a terrifying real experience, right? No, and and I think people really understood. They might not have guessed what the end of the movie was be, going to be, but they totally understood that because the the, the kid was going to be saved even though he wasn't a very good actor. I wanna do, do, do a quick time check on our meeting because we're about, uh, we're 10 minutes away from when we're supposed to shut it down, but I think we'll kind of keep it going right up until debate time. And if anybody needs to drop out, drop out. I am gonna watch the debate like everybody else. So I'm eager to see it, but um, I'd like to just sort of uh, uh, keep our conversation moving and see what else we, uh, if we have any other contributions from our audience, they can be questions, they can be observations, anything. Well, you know, talking also talking about the the condition at the time. I mean, I think Roosevelt was elected in thirty two, became president in thirty three, and so, 
34. Okay. Uh, but you know, that, that whole thing, the, the, the whole country was changing. I mean, it, it's, it's an amazing time. You had it right at first. It was 32, 33. Um, okay. Let's, let's, uh, I want to call out to some of our audience members, uh, other audience members who might have questions or contributions. Thank you so much, Elliot. I appreciate sure. it. Uh, I think Andre has a question. Um, hi. Um, yeah, I have, I just have like a little comment. Um, I was I was really impressed by I'm not really familiar with the era, but I was really impressed by um, how effective you know the narrative of the film is. It's like like um, like Caroline was pointing out. It's it's like 65 minutes, and it kind of goes from growing up of these three characters, and all the way until like one of them dies, right? So I, I I'm curious to know if like if this is like a common thing in in um, in the pre-code era or, or the 30s uh, to have like films that are like 60 minutes, kind of 65 minutes, because I, yeah, it was really impressive to me how, how they can cover so much of the story or the, of the narrative in so little um, and in so little time. And I was also shocked by kind of like how they, and my second question goes to um, to see if, uh, if like the whole, the whole thing about you know, like the portrayal of these three women in film in that era, how, like, I was wondering if you if you can talk a little bit more about that, because they seem pretty, quote, unquote, uh, liberal, right? Uh, like, one of them marries the uh, the the other woman's uh, husband and stuff like that, and it's not, no big deal. Uh, and kind of like that treatment of, you know, of, uh, of uh, marriage and, and kind of like the... the the role that women plays in this film, right? So I was wondering if you can talk about that, about just how how that portrayal happens in these movies and in this era and, and kind of like the, the running time of the film. And I really liked it, by the way. That's great. Thank you for Lars, what, what do you think about, what do you think about the running time question? I'd love to hear what you think about that. Um, I, I think that it's really efficient. I mean, it's, it's sometimes maybe even now, I mean, it wasn't that unusual to see 60 minute or 65 minute movies or 70 minute movies. It was more, it was more common. Um, and sometimes those would be on double bills. So that was another sort of factor there. But I, I think when we see a lot of movies that feel pretty Hollywood movies feel a little bloated sometimes, let's face it, you know, maybe a few too many mouths to feed um, is that, you know, you really can efficiently make a movie where a lot of stuff happens uh, because audiences, even in 1932, understand how narratives work they understand how stories are told and you don't have to guide them through every little thing and a lot of times it's even more effective i think if it if it's sort of has this haiku like quality of like having a character say something and having us kind of figure out what's going on so all of these things i think have a certain kind of serendipity that to me makes these films just so rewarding and not just entertaining but just sort of exciting and thought-provoking and I think one aspect that I'll throw in just as kind of a point of consideration is that director Mervyn Leroy was 30 or 31 when he made this. We sometimes think about this period of Hollywood as being old cigar chomping men. Uh, Jack Warner, the head of the studio, was 39 or 40 when this was made. So you, it really was not a period where these were these cigar chomping old um, machine bound functionaries. This was, these were energetic young people who were out there and coming up with new and better ways to do things uh, in the great American vein, you know? And I think that that's, um, 
that's what you see with Warner Brothers. Uh, and with most of the studios, it's like, we figured out how to tell stories in a way that's a little more efficient, you know, just a little bit better. You know, we can we can do it with like just a little bit fewer reels, one fewer reel than what Paramount is using. So I, that's that's my sort of feeling on the on the pep uh, of, of these films. What do you think, Caroline? Good, good use of pep, because yeah. um, that's a definitely a term that they would have used. I, I totally agree. And I think that what's interesting is in some ways thinking about your, your question and, and your comment, Andres, is, is related both in terms of what you see, like from a narrative standpoint, the people involved, and then the fact that it's produced at Warner Brothers. Because when you look at how all of the studios were trying to differentiate their product, basically, Warner Brothers at least before the coming of sound was the scrappiest and the poorest. So in some ways it's been argued, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's been argued that the reason that Warner Brothers experimented with sound initially was that they had the least to lose. They had the least amount of money. They weren't Paramount, they weren't Universal, they weren't MGM. So Warner Brothers experimented with this. The other thing that Warner Brothers was very good at was they, during the depression, were hunkering down and trying to figure out every way that they could save money. And that means, shorter films. It also meant that they were the studio that pulled literally, I mean, think about it. I, I used to laugh when Law and Order was that tentpole on NBC. At the very end, Law and Order was just ripped from the headlines. If, if they would see um, a, a terrible thing in the New York Post, they would turn around and make it a TV show within two weeks. That's what Warner Brothers was doing. So one could sort of, back to Ali's point, sort of go, they're like, mm, okay, Kidnapping seems hot right now. We're going to do this. And in fact, one of the writers of this particular film was a former New York Times night. Uh, I don't know what the right term is because I don't know journalism that well, but it was kind of like the night guy. Night desk. Night there desk. you go. He was on the night desk. And this was something that Warner Brothers did a lot where they were trying to address social problems, but social problems were really like gangsters. I mean, they were kind of the seedy side of... Uh, the depression. So what you're seeing in some ways is kind of the penultimate approach that, that Warner Brothers was taking during the depression. In terms of the representation of women, in some ways it's tied kind of similarly to that, which is that this, and in fact, I was kind of interested what you all would think about this. I was trying to figure out what genre this film is. If you look at how the trade press in the 30s would have talked about this movie, I would probably say this was a hybrid of a woman's picture. This was something that was targeted for women or it was actually a social problem film because towards the end of it, it really does feel almost more like a gangster or a crime film. It's kind of an interesting hybrid, but that representation of women was very much targeted in a very specific way for female viewership because most of the studios, whether or not this is true, nobody ever could prove it they felt that there were more women going to movies than men. So this is kind of, this is kind of an interesting, I think, artifact of that period where they're saying, we know it, we're gonna put, we're gonna put these women in there and these kind of, to your point, more relatable or sympathetic roles. They're not pure as the driven snow. They're complicated. Well, except for Betty Davis, which we don't really know what she's up to. They're more complicated. Yeah, there's a sort of, um... Some people might think it's being funny to say it's kind of like Sex in the City, but Sex in the City was exactly, it picked up exactly where these films went. And this is not a joke. I mean, that's, that was the formula. And that was a formula that was really established by women's pictures like this 
Um, and these were these were women's pictures for women about women's relationships and the men in their lives would kind of come and go, but it was ultimately about the women. So that, that I think that that's a great point that Warner Brothers makes a women's picture, but they just Warner cannot not have gangsters somehow. You know, they've got to have gangsters and throw gangsters in the women's picture, which is so it really is. It is a hybrid movie. You're absolutely right in terms of what genre is it. I wonder if we have maybe a couple more. We've got all these wonderful people and I hope that maybe we have a couple more contributions from our great looking audience. Yeah, there was a question in the chat. Uh, was it a B picture? No, right, Caroline? This was not a B. It's a great question. I, it would be, it would be interesting to debate this with you, Lars, because I know that Betty Davis thought it was a B picture. Mm -hmm. I mean, she definitely was furious that she was stuck in this movie. Joan Blondell wouldn't have cared less. Um, as for the mysterious Ange Vorak, we don't know. Um, I would say that they were, they, the studio was trying to certainly cultivate Joan Blondell into being a very top, top star at this point in time. And she was a top star. Same with Ange Vorak. I would say if, if you look at how the studios would approach this kind of double bill, right? That the way it usually would go was, and it wasn't just an A picture and a B picture, it was actually an A picture, a B picture, a C picture, and then what they would call the Zs, which were just God awful. Um, I would say this is an interesting one, probably in between the two. And part of it, I do think has to do with its length because there's something kind of interesting about its succinct compact nature um, that is a little bit, little bit more like a B, but you think it's firmly an A, huh? No, I think it's an A minus. I think it would have, I think it would have started off as an A, and then as it reached sort of secondary territories, become a B. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, when it opened in New York and Chicago and Philly, it was an A probably. I'm, I just, I just, it feels that way to me. And it's yeah. kind of like it's a little more expensive than your average B. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Um, I just wanted to say that thank you for somebody bringing up Jen, um, asking a question about what was Vivian on, because that was a question that I was really bothered by, because I, of course, am a child of the code. I feel strongly that the best movies are code movies. Um, DTs, oh, interesting. What did people think she was on? I feel like that's something good for the chat, because I was like, what? Because remember at the end, they're like, she's not going to last long. We got to get out there. What was she, what was she on? Well, one, one gangster says sniffles, huh? Meaning, which I, I sort of took to meaning like that's kind of an advanced stage of heroin withdrawal. For me, some people have seen it as cocaine because, you know, when Donald Trump or other cocaine users sniffle that it means, you know, that they've been doing cocaine um, or, uh, sorry, I just threw that in. Um, but, but it's also a stage of heroin withdrawal when you get the sniffles and, you know, you look like she looks at the end, so. I'm not quite sure. And I wonder if there was originally a scene maybe that was cut or if there was something in that was intended to be in there to show that Lyle Talbot got her on the needle. I, you know, I don't know. And this is where it being a pre-code is interesting because I think it being a pre-code, they could have been a little bit more direct, but they didn't. Like, I think, I think they could, they could have alluded to more and maybe, maybe it was the whole nose thing. I don't know. 
but it's a it's a great question. But again, kind of to to um, uh, Andreas's point, like these are pretty complicated characters, and the fact that it's a it's kind of a fallen woman film, but with a real twist to it. That, that's the other thing about this kind of era is there are so many women's pictures in which babies are given up, and this is like one of the more odd versions of that, um, where you have to sacrifice your life literally for the child. Um, and this this falls straight into that, but so different from, let's say, what the Paramount versions of this were or the Universal versions, which were far more melodramatic and far more kind of um, women staying kind of with a with a, a married as a mistress. They'd stay with a married man for ages. This is very different, very, very different. And it's a very different. I should point out that it's also very different to representation of how a man might react to this when you have Warren William, who is not always depicted as in films when you saw Warren Williams, who's the guy with the Barrymore profile. Um, you don't really normally see him as depicted as this sort of sensitive man, uh, but he's very sensitive and caring yeah, and sort is. of understanding here. It's, it's a, a little unusual. I wonder if anybody else kind of found that a little bit odd, how just sort of like accepting he is that his wife is shirking the marital bed, um, so to speak, uh, in this in this film. Uh, you wouldn't normally see men being understanding of that. And in fact, movies would often, like if a man did, did run off and commit adultery for that, he would be seen as sort of justified in a way uh, in film narratives. Uh, I know Kevin had his question a while back, his hand up. I don't know if he still wanted to ask it. Oh, it was already kind of brought up. I was gonna say, it just reminded me um, the ending, a bit over the top, yes, but it made me think like, uh, I read it as the redemption of a fallen woman because she's actually falling out of the window and that's how she redeems herself, you know? And her wild ways, kind of in the vein of like, you know, Madame Bovary, which is what I see in all those movies, really. It's so, it's so good that you brought that up and you are definitely more poetic than I because I haven't even thought about that in terms of the fallen woman falling out of the window that's beautiful i'm going to write that down for one of my classes because that is really good um you know it's interesting you bring up madame bovary because i think that to a certain degree when you look at how a lot of the studios perhaps not warner brothers but certainly paramount and universal they were looking to those books specifically they were it was the anna karanana it was the madame bovary it was all of those kind of fallen woman narratives that that they were looking to um for these types of films which is why i think warner brothers doing this kind of movie is this weird kind of american version of that whereas probably if you looked at paramount during this point in time or again universal i think universal was kind of the the, the quintessential of these they were almost more overtly um or even actually MGM, I think they were more overtly like, we're going to do our version of Anna Karenina. So um, yeah, this is this is a great this is a great way of looking at that. These these were very much in that vein. Yeah, MGM did Anna Karenina at least twice. I I think like actually doing Anna Karenina. I think we're going to have to wrap it up. I do want to kind of look through the chat, which I was slow to kind of uh, jump on. Uh, Busted little boy wasn't Anna Karenina with uh, Greta Garbo. That's interesting. Um, Annette Pearson says she likes the social class differentiation between the women and and then how they cross boundaries. You wouldn't have seen that in uh, an MGM film. You wouldn't have seen. You might have seen it in a Columbia film. You wouldn't have seen it in a in a, a Paramount film, probably. So that's that's a very Warner Brothers kind of thing. Warner Brothers, the studio that acknowledges class uh, and that actually makes films where class is a, a huge motivating 
factor of the characters, I think that that's uh, that's a that's what Warner Brothers was. It's why why we're big Warner Brothers fans probably because it's so it's one of the when you don't talk about class, you're missing the great narrative often that's going on. Um, thanks for everybody who misses AFS. I appreciate that. <laughs> we, yeah. we miss it so much. Uh, we miss you guys too. And um, I, I do want to just kind of make a little sort of personal note that AFS, even though we're an art nonprofit, is shockingly well run. And this is not from me. This is from our whole team. AFS is shockingly well run. So um, AFS will be back when it's uh, the cinema will be back uh, when it's safe. I should say AFS is already doing a million things for artists and doing a lot of other things that are not the cinema, but the cinema will be back. Um, but at this point, I don't feel that it's safe to, to reopen and expose uh, yeah. people to what's going on. So um, this is not a statement. I hope this doesn't end up in the newspaper tomorrow. I just wanted to, since you guys obviously care about what we're doing, um, don't worry that AFS is in the same sort of danger that you may have seen other beloved local institutions in. We're not, we're doing great, uh, provided everybody who is a member and who gives, continues to give to AFS, we're gonna be all right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we're not opening just yet, even though a lot of other movie theaters are because um, we don't think it's safe. We're listening to the doctors. So They're not doing well either. Uh, the ones that are opening, no, I know, I see all their numbers. Uh, they're not selling very many seats. Yeah, yeah. Um, but enough of that. Uh, I just wanted to say this too, as kind of a family thing, so that everybody who's here, who's part of our family, sort of knows that we will be back. Um, we're continuing to uh, work hard to make that happen and have meetings about it and all that kind of stuff. So uh, thanks, everybody. Caroline, it's always such a joy to talk to you about this stuff. You know so much. You're coming from such a great perspective on it. And I, I really enjoy talking to you. And I think uh, for you to share uh, your insight with all of us who are, are, are don't know quite as much about movies as you do, uh, we really uh, appreciate it and we get a lot out of it. I hope you get a lot out of talking to people too. I've gotten some great insights from some of the people asking questions and offering contributions today. So thank you, Caroline. Yeah, thanks to you all for showing up on kind thank of this crazy, crazy night. So uh, in, in light of prohibition, pour yourself a good mixed drink for the uh, debate. Sorry. And if you don't drink or you can't drink like me, yeah. well. Um, because I just had surgery, um, then uh, uh, have some kava, which is oh, all yeah. the same. <laughs> right, take care, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much.